The subject of the talk this evening is joy and happiness. We've spent a lot of time in this retreat sort of exploring the vocabulary of the Buddha's teachings around this concept of dukkha, which is very central as the Four Noble Truths are founded around dukkha, its origin, its end, and the way to its end. But you know, those Four Noble Truths could also have been formulated in terms of happiness. And it would come out something like this. There is unhappiness in life. The cause of unhappiness is wanting. Real happiness is possible. And the way to real happiness is the Eightfold Path. Although we talk a lot about the hindrances and the kilesas and the afflictive emotions and all the difficulties of practice, it's also important to remember that joy and happiness are essential parts of this path. And especially at a certain point in development, they're really necessary to further the movement. The sense of uh, deep contentment relaxation and surrender can't fully ripen unless they come out of a place of uh, joy and happiness. So these are essential parts of the path, but they don't always show up strongly in the beginning. It may take some time to really feel the development and the ripening of these factors in practice. So don't worry if they're not there today or this week. But it's important to know where we're headed, you know, because as Yogi Berra said, if you don't know where you're going, you'll wind up somewhere else. <laughs> so we want to be sure that we wind up in the right place with this quality of joy, this quality of happiness. It's very helpful to actually spend some attention and time cultivating these as ongoing parts of your practice, your meditation practice, because this kind of development will keep the mind inclining to what is wholesome. If you remember the uh, definition of right effort, two of the pieces of the four elements of right effort are about the wholesome developing the wholesome and maintaining the wholesome. Joy and happiness are part of that mix of wholesome qualities that we want to continue to cultivate and develop because they're so supportive. There is, I think, among our community a real thirst to find these qualities and develop them in our hearts and minds. Uh, you may know a friend of ours is James Barraz in California, who's written a book called Awakening Joy. And it's become very uh, popular and highly recommended if you'd like to develop these qualities further. So James has done for several years now a class in Berkeley based on the book and very practical ways to help people develop more joy in their life and in their meditation. And he structures the class in such a way that there's an in-person portion and an online portion. So at one point, his book got uh, a favorable mention from Oprah Winfrey in O Magazine. <laughs> and of course, that's a big platform to get noticed in. And after 
that review came out, the next session of his class had an enrollment of 2,900 people. <laughs> which in the Vipassana world is a pretty good turnout. So it's not like a Taylor Swift video, but it's still a pretty good... I think one of hers just went over a billion views. But it's to, for Vipassana, it's a good turnout. So it's important first in the beginning to start to notice these qualities when they come. You know, we spend so much time, especially in the beginning, talking about dukkha and the hindrances and the kilesas and afflictive emotions, that in a way it inclines us to be on the lookout for those. You know, we can develop this kind of vigilance about, watch out, one of those hindrances is about to sneak in, and then an uh, experience of calm comes and we hardly even notice it or recognize it or open to it because it's not one of these threatening mind states. But it's just as important to notice and be open to the positive qualities in meditation, like the seven factors of awakening, like the Brahma Viharas, like the five spiritual faculties, as it is to be mindful of the difficult ones. So in the beginning of practice, we often develop more attention to the difficult states. But what we want to find is a balance of mind in mindfulness that's not looking particularly one way or the other. A mind that is so poised in the middle that it's equally open to seeing the beautiful as seeing the difficult. So that we're not biased one way or another. It's as though the mind is on that midpoint which we could call zero or we could call emptiness. And it's just open to what appears. So open to seeing the beautiful qualities as well as anything. And the more we notice them, the more the mind learns to find its way there. The development of these qualities comes with the mindfulness and recognition of them when we're there. Emphasizing the beautiful qualities at different times in our practice is actually skillful because it redresses the imbalance where the mind so often looks for the negative. You know, it is true that craving is a frequent visitor. Greed, aversion, and delusion are frequent visitors. The hindrances come often. And such a mind inclines to seeing difficulty inclines to seeing insufficiency, inclines to the negative. So by cultivating and putting attention and emphasis on the wholesome qualities, positive qualities, we start to right that imbalance a little bit. And we remember what the Buddha said when he said, what one frequently thinks and ponders upon, that becomes the inclination of one's mind. We want to think and ponder upon uh, these qualities. There's a very large vocabulary in the suttas for the range of qualities pointed to by these uh, two English terms, joy and happiness. And I just want to read some of them in Pali and the English translation. You'll be familiar with many. Some of them you may not be so familiar with. Mudita which is the third Brahma-vihara, usually translated as empathetic joy or sympathetic joy, which if you're staying for part two, you'll have formal instruction in developing. The word sukha, I find this a very pleasant term. 
Uh, I would translate it normally as happiness. This is the word I normally translate as happiness. And what I like about it is it has a, a little bit of a sound like sucrose, which is sugar. So it has this sweet connotation for me. And sukha is that quality in the mind that brings a lot of sweetness. Um, often when people are experiencing sukha, a little smile will come spontaneously onto their face with this happiness. The word ananda, which is normally translated as bliss. You see this in a lot of Buddhist names. The Buddha's cousin was called ananda. My first preceptor in Thailand was panyananda, which means the bliss of wisdom. And when I ordained as a monk for the second time, I asked for the name and my preceptor granted it, sunyatananda, which means the bliss of emptiness. So you'll see it used a lot in names, this attribute of bliss. Piti, which you already know, means rapture. It's the fourth of the uh, enlightenment factors. Pomoja, this is a word that uh, I would translate as joy. This is the Pali word that I would typically translate as joy. It comes up in a quite important sutta that I'll mention later in this talk. Somanasa, gladness of mind. And it's contrasted with domanasa, which is uh, difficulty of mind. Santuti. Don't you like the sound of that? <laughs> Santuti. Sounds like an Italian gelato machine. <laughs> and that means contentment. Uh, one of the stanzas in the Dhammapada says, Santuti is the greatest wealth. Contentment is the greatest wealth. So all these terms are pointing to the same basic quality, gladness, uplift, happiness, empathic joy, delight. So they were not neglected in the Buddhist teachings at all. You know, it's a thread that runs all through. So uh, where Pamoja comes in especially is this one sutta in the Samyutta Nikaya called the Upanisa Sutta about uh, another version of dependent origination with 12 links showing causal relationships among them. And we normally call this one transcendent dependent origination, which is quite a mouthful, but it's called transcendent because it transcends suffering. So whereas the original dependent origination is showing how suffering is created based on ignorance and craving, this cycle describes how liberation is reached through positive states of mind. It describes the journey totally in positive and wholesome terms. So it begins with suffering. It picks up where the first dependent origination leaves off. And then it goes to faith. Now that's an interesting combination. How does it that suffering leads to faith? And it's because when we suffer, we are motivated to find a solution and when we discover that there is a solution available through these teachings, through other teachings, our faith is strengthened and gives us the energy to walk the path. And that leads to the next quality, which is pamoja or joy. And then joy leads on to rapture, tranquility, happiness, concentration, insight, and liberation. So the movement into the maturing of these faculties is from joy, 
rapture, tranquility, and happiness. This is what needs to be found. Bhikkhu Analeo is the author of a, a book that I recommend uh, to all of you if you haven't read it. It's called Satipatthana. It's an extensive commentary on the Satipatthana Sutta. And he's quite a remarkable uh, person. He's a German monk who ordained in Sri Lanka, practiced there, learned Pali there, is very familiar with the whole range of the Pali discourses. And because he felt that was fairly simple, he went on to learn Chinese so that he could translate the equivalent discourses that are found in Chinese. And he's since gone on to learn Tibetan so he can do comparative studies <laughs> with that also. And he's a very uh, a dedicated and uh, excellent practitioner. So he's one of the uh, probably most remarkable Western scholars who combines both a deep practice orientation and a really extensive knowledge of the original texts. So in other words, he's a reliable guy. <laughs> so this is his comment from Satipatthana. The entire scheme of the gradual training, which is what we're all involved in, we're involved in a gradual training, the entire scheme can be envisaged as a progressive refinement of joy. The whole thing we're embarked upon is a progressive refinement of joy, leading to culminating in liberation, which the Buddha described in this way, Nibbana is the highest happiness. This is from the Dhammapada. Nibbana is the highest happiness. And that's where mindfulness leads. As you know from Sally's talks on the Satipatthana Sutta, the practice of mindfulness leads in only one direction, and that is to liberation and Nibbana. So the discovery of joy is a really good ally at many, many points, not only as an integral factor of the path, especially on the upward trajectory to liberation, but it's such a great ally in times of difficulty. And all of us, as we continue on the path, are going to run into times of difficulty. This came uh, fully home to me about 10 years ago. I went uh, back to Asia. I had not quite finished with the robes when I left the monkhood the first time in Thailand, which was in the 80s. And I'd always had a little bit of a nostalgia for being a monk. So I went back again in 2005 to Burma with the intention of ordaining again. And because I wanted to practice with Paok Sayadaw, who's a very renowned master of concentration and insight, uh, who had a large monastery. So I traveled over there and his monastery is about 200 miles south, southeast of Rangoon. So I arrived late one afternoon, went up to meet the Sayadaw at his house about 5 p.m. I was introduced and uh, very pleased to meet him. And I said to him, Sayadaw, I'd like to stay for about six weeks. And if it's possible, I'd like to ordain. And he checked out that I had been a monk before. So I sort of knew the basics of the Vinaya and the monk's life. So he said, okay. I'll ordain you tomorrow. So I just arrived, you know, I'd just been off the plane a couple of days. I just arrived there with my big suitcases and foam mat and all of that. And I was going to ordain the next day. 
So in the morning, I went into town and bought my robes and bowl and belt. You know, I got my monk gear together. <laughs> Came back to the monastery, had lunch, and immediately after lunch, I joined a small group. My head was shaved. I changed into the robes, and I was a monk about an hour later. It all happened really quickly. <laughs> well, in the intervening years, I'd sort of forgotten how to tie the robes. So I was walking around with them slipping off my shoulders, uh, you know, for quite a while. But I sort of got back into the habit, we might say. (laughs) Okay. And so I went there to do Sayadaw's concentration practice, and he has a rigorous practice and a rigorous schedule. In doing concentration practice with him, he has you focus on just the small area below the tip of the nose on the upper lip, about the size of a dime. That is your sole meditation object in sitting, in walking, in meals, and throughout the day. So it's a very narrow focus. I went to him and said, "Uh, what should I do about hindrances? Hindrances are coming up. He said, oh, if you're averse, do metta, and if you're sleepy, pull your ears. That was the instruction. <laughs> so other than that, I was, I was right here in this very small place for six weeks. So that's a very disciplined kind of practice. And the schedule at the monastery, by the way, there were about 750 people practicing when I was there. About 400 or so of them were monks, about 150 were nuns, and the rest were lay people. So it was a strong practice energy. The schedule uh, was such that we were sitting several times a day in a very big meditation hall. The shortest sitting was an hour and a half. The longest sitting was two hours. And as a new arrival, there was no way around that. I was to be at the meditation center. I was to be in my spot, hour and a half, most sittings, two hours, some sitting. So this was challenging. And in addition, I had arrived on the day that the rains retreat began. Now, this should have been a clue about the weather, but I hadn't quite thought it through. So I ordained, and the day was actually fine. The next day, the rain started, and they kept up solidly for about the next three weeks. I really didn't see the sun for three weeks. Mold was growing on my baggage, Insects were crawling around my kuti, and the rain just kept coming down. Uh, It rained about three inches a day over that period, so a real tropical downpour. And then uh, there were the meals. So breakfast timing didn't work out so well for me. I was just eating one meal a day. And it's a vegetarian monastery, which I really appreciated because I'm vegetarian. But there wasn't a huge amount of protein. It was basically white rice and stir-fried vegetables. So I started losing weight, and I lost about half a pound a day over the time that I was there. And I didn't have a lot to give up. So that was going on. The rain kept coming down. And then my robe still kept kind of (laughs) falling off my shoulder. So I remember this one day. It was really raining hard. I'd gone down to the dining hall, and I... I had a really hot bowl full of food, so I tried to cradle that in one elbow with dessert in the lid, 
my umbrella over my head as I was walking back along the dirt path to my kuti where I was going to eat and my left shoulder kept coming undone. And as I was going, there were these very devout Burmese lay people kneeling by the side of the path and bowing to this Western monk who couldn't even keep his robes on (laughs) and who was about to lose his whole lunch on the path. So long story short, I had a very difficult time at that point. It was about three weeks in to a six-week retreat, and the practice was difficult, the weather was difficult. I've never seen such big spiders as inhabited my kuti. And I got, and I was losing weight, and I was getting really glum. You know, everything just looked really gloomy to me. Fortunately, I had one um, piece on my little altar in my hut which was a photograph of the Dalai Lama with a couple of verses from uh, Shantideva surrounding it. And I find the Dalai Lama a very inspiring being and a very beautiful being. So he was my resource. And I felt in real need of some uplift and some advice. So I said, um, Your Holiness, I'm having a really hard time do you have any advice for me? And I was in a state of real supplication. I was really looking for some help beyond pull your earlobes. <laughs> so immediately that I made the request, the answer came. It was so interesting. It was exactly his voice. You know, a slightly high-pitched Indian-accented English that he speaks in? That's exactly the voice I heard. And there was a a very clear message that what the Dalai Lama said was, stay cheerful, optimistic, and confident. A positive attitude is the best support. And then transmission ended. That was it. That was the message. Stay cheerful, optimistic, and confident. And I've thought about that many times since. I revisited a lot of times on that retreat. And at times it was really helpful. At other times I couldn't even remember what cheerful felt like. So then I, you know, I couldn't use it. But if I could remember that advice, I could often incorporate it and just pick my mind up and move it into that more wholesome place. And it helped that the words had come from the Dalai Lama himself in that short transmission. Because he is such a happy and joyful person. I pick that up from him and it inspires me a lot. You know, as we know, he has the whole weight of the Tibetan nation on his shoulders. The seven million Tibetan people who remain, something like two million have been killed since the occupation, 1949. But he is the only hope for the remaining Tibetan people and Tibetan culture. There's no one else on the world stage who has his stature, who could possibly shape the international situation for his people. And even the Dalai Lama is not uh, succeeding in that role. But despite this enormous burden that he carries, he is so light and happy, cheerful, optimistic, and confident. He will say that over and over again. So I just like this little, um, this little anecdote with him. He was at a gathering of scientists in Dharamsala. He's very interested in bridging the Buddhist world and the scientific world. So he often has 
scientists come over to where he lives. And one of the scientists in a, in a break was chatting with him and said, what was the happiest time of your life? <laughs> and I thought, well, surely the Dalai Lama is going to say, oh, it was when I was a kid in the Potala and Tibetan culture was intact and my tutors were revealing to me everything about Buddhism and it was just opening up, dawning, it was so beautiful. I thought he would say something like that, a little bit nostalgic. Instead, he said, I think right now, <laughs> this is the happiest time in my life. What a great answer. Right now is the happiest time. That's a beautiful attitude. So, I want to talk a little bit about some different ways that we can develop and bring around these qualities of joy and happiness in our meditation. The first is uh, the practice of mudita. I think in terms of formal Buddhist practices, this is the most direct path to joy. It is the happiest practice that I know of in the whole realm of Buddhist meditation. The whole thing is about uplifting our heart and moving into a place of joy. It's defined as taking joy in the happiness of others. You know, a simple example, uh, I got a call out of the blue from a friend one day. I hadn't talked to her for a while. I said, how are you? And she said, I'm wonderful. And she meant it, you know, I could just feel that enthusiasm in her voice. I'm wonderful. And without even thinking, I just said, I'm wonderful too. (laughs) And that was just that instant arising of mudita based on her happiness. It just picked me up also. So it's kind of like a double dose of happiness, the experience of mudita. We resonate with someone else like the, I like this word sympathetic because You know how a sitar is built, that Indian stringed instrument? There are sympathetic strings underneath, I don't know, 12 or 17 or something, and then the main strings above that get plucked, and the little strings aren't plucked usually. They just resonate in sympathy with the strings that the musician fingers. And that's the way sympathetic joy works. When someone else's heart is resonating with happiness, our heart resonates in response to that. So it becomes contagious. A simple phrase, if you feel like playing with it, um, if you haven't had formal instruction, a simple phrase for the practice of mudita, thinking of someone else, is may your happiness and good fortune continue. And then you just focus on the things in their life that are happy, the blessings that are active for them. Shantideva, that 7th century Indian uh, author, put it like this, whatever joy there is in this world, all comes from wanting others to be happy. And whatever suffering there is in this world, all comes from wanting only myself to be happy. This is a beautiful indicator for our metta practice also. Metta picks up our heart when we wish others well. Mudita does the same. We don't teach mudita a lot in formal settings. It will be taught in part two. We teach it on metta retreats, usually. Um, But so one weekend, um, I decided that I wanted to teach mudita here. So I taught a weekend retreat uh, with another teacher just on the theme of mudita. So people came in on Friday evening and we just practiced mudita the whole weekend together. 
And I thought, well, nothing's going to happen in a weekend because it's kind of like the worst of a retreat, isn't it? You have the first day where your body really hurts, and then you have the last day where you're already thinking about going home. That's, that's a weekend retreat. But I was amazed how much people got out of it. Just doing the practice consistently, I could feel it in my own experience, and I could feel it shaping others. And at the end of that weekend, one of the meditators came up and said, you know, this is the happiest I've felt in years, just from two days of doing mudita. So it really is an uplifting uh, kind of practice. Other ways that happiness is found in life, you know, as lay people, part of our life is about sense pleasures. And we know that sense pleasures are impermanent and they don't give deep lasting happiness and all of that. And yet, uh, imagine your lay life without any sense pleasures. Wouldn't it feel a little bare? Yeah, it's one thing to come in this environment where the meditation is nourishing us. We have what the Buddha called the joys of renunciation. But in lay life, we have sense pleasures and they do give a brightness uh, to our experience. You know, around food and movies and music and sex and art and clothes, all those are just natural parts of our uh, lay life and they do give some, some uplift. Sometimes people think that the Buddha was all against sense pleasures. And uh, the monastic life is a path that does renounce sense pleasures as far as possible. But the Buddha understood that the life of lay people was different from that. And he did not condemn sense pleasures for lay people. The basic advice was to be moderate and to be mindful of their effect in our lives. So there are a lot of simple and uh, beautiful sense pleasures that we find here. Waking up and having a hot shower, or being cold, coming in and having a hot cup of tea, seeing the beauty of the leaves on the trees this six weeks was delightful. Seeing the sun come out after some days of rain and cloud, or one of the greatest pleasures when I'm on retreat is lying down in bed at the end of a day. <laughs> the only trouble is that it goes so short because I fall asleep and the next day I'm waking up and I start again. Anyway, it's pleasant <laughs> while it lasts. And because we're so sensitive, all these things are really heightened. I mean, some of my favorite meals here have been a simple dinner with a piece of fruit and a cup of tea. You know, it all tastes so rich. Buddha said, robes, alms food, a hut, and a straw seat will seem rich and luxurious to one who has renounced. I feel that in this environment, great appreciation for these simple pleasures that we have. We have the ability here to find a lot of joy in nature. And many of you have talked about this in the interviews, how restorative, uplifting, healing, opening it is to be in the nature around here. And one of the places that I was practicing in Thailand where I was a monk, it was quite an isolated situation. I was out in a monastery that was way at the end of a dirt road. I had the hut that was furthest out uh, in the whole monastery. I couldn't see another hut from mine. The teacher didn't speak English, so I didn't have 
uh, Dharma talks or interviews for the three months that I was practicing there. I was practicing quite intensively, just the way you all are practicing here. And my contact with the teacher was he would come up to my hut from time to time kind of to check on me. And fortunately, every time he came up, I was doing something. I was either walking or I was sitting. And he would just look at me and say, D, D, which in Thai means good, good. And that was the extent of our... (laughs) That was the extent of our check-in. I was practicing, so I was doing good. Uh, And I didn't have... There were no other... uh, English speakers there for me to, to talk to. Actually, one of my friends was there as a nun, but monks and nuns can't hang out together. So <laughs> I was quite isolated for three months, practicing intensively, no, no real outer supports. But I felt what really did sustain me was nature. This monastery was located at the, uh, at the, at the bottom of a river gorge. So there were steep cliffs on both sides and this strong stream that flowed right down the center of the monastery. It was very interesting because the monks' huts were on one side, the left side of the stream as it ran down, and the nuns' huts were on the other. It was small. There were only probably about 15 on each side. And this beautiful river running right through. And my kuti was right on the edge of that river, and I could look up all day long and see the, the trees that were looming above on the sides of the gorge. So I really felt the nature was my, really my resource in that time. And it can be here also. Even for monastics, the enjoyment of nature is not uh, discouraged. And I noticed this from uh, some verses from the time of the Buddha. Mahakasapa was one of the most ascetic monks of the Buddha's followers. Uh, and after, his, after the Buddha's death, Mahakasapa was more or less the most senior monk in the whole Sangha. Um, and even though he was very ascetic, he loved nature. And so he left behind this uh, beautiful poem about his love for nature in a, a volume called the Theragata, Verses of the Elder Monks. It's called At Home in the Mountains. I'll just read a couple of passages Strung with garlands of flowering vines, this patch of earth delights the mind. The lovely calls of elephants sound. These rocky crags do please me so. Like the lofty peaks of looming clouds, like the most refined of palaces, the lovely calls of tuskers sound. These rocky crags do please me so. The lovely ground is rained upon. The hills are full of holy seers. Resounding with the cry of peacocks, these rocky crags do please me so. It continues with more verses like that. He was an arhant. And so you can see just his sensitivity and uh, joy in the beauty that surrounded him. This is from Ajahn Sumedho, the abbot of Amaravati in England. The former abbot. Sometimes in Theravada Buddhism, one gets the impression that you shouldn't enjoy beauty. If you see a beautiful flower, you should contemplate its decay. Or if you see a beautiful woman, you should contemplate her as a rotting corpse. (laughs) That's a good reflection on Anicca, Dukkha, and Anatta, but it can leave the impression that beauty is only to be reflected on in terms of these three characteristics. 
rather than in terms of the experience of beauty. This is the joy of mudita, being able to appreciate the beauty in things around us. Other access to joy, um, Kamala talked a lot about the quality of sila in her recent talk. And there is a great joy in virtue. The Buddha talked about it as the bliss of blamelessness. That when we have been committed for a long time to uh, practices that don't harm others, over time there grows in us this appreciation for that refinement. And we enjoy looking back on our past conduct and seeing that there is nothing to blame ourselves for in the way that we've acted. And this leads to a certain kind of happiness. You might know this verse that uh, is right at the opening of the Dhammapada. Mind is the forerunner of all things. Mind is chief. Speak and act with a pure mind and happiness will follow you like your shadow, unshakable. Speak and act with a pure mind and happiness will follow you. This is one of the fruits of beautiful conduct. Again, I think the Dalai Lama is a great example of how that can be developed. So at one point, um, Oprah Winfrey was interviewing him for an article in her magazine. Oh, so they were going to talk for an hour and Oprah started by asking the Dalai Lama, have you ever had to forgive yourself for anything? So this leads us to reflect back on our own forgiveness meditation from a few weeks ago. Most of us can find a few things, right? The Dalai Lama replied, small incidents like accidentally killing an insect. Killing an insect, Oprah said. Hmm, okay. (laughs) The Dalai Lama continued, my attitude toward mosquitoes is not very favorable. Not very peaceful. Bed bugs also. And that's it? Oprah couldn't quite believe what she was hearing. In your lifetime, that's what you have to forgive yourself for? Small mistakes every day, maybe, the Dalai Lama said evenly. But major mistakes, it seems no. No major mistakes, Oprah repeated, mulling over the idea. There was awe in her voice when she continued, You have nothing in life that you have regrets about. That's a great life to have no regrets. Regarding service to Tibet, the Dalai Lama said, service to Buddhism, service to humanity, I have done as much as I can. Regarding my own spiritual practice, when I share my experiences with more advanced meditators, even those who have spent years in the mountains practicing single-pointedness of mind, I don't lag too far behind. So I believe that a lot of that brightness, happiness, and purity that we see in the Dalai Lama comes from his refinement of conduct, which of course is embedded in compassion and loving kindness. There's also a lot of joy and generosity. Kamala talked about this also. And I'm reminded of um, going to Burma when I went to ordain and a student knew that I was going and knew, the te- knew what teacher I was going to practice with and wanted to make an offering. 
So she gave me a few hundred dollars to take and to donate to the monastery in whatever way I thought was appropriate. So when I arrived, I talked to the clerk, it was before I ordained, I was still in lay clothes. I talked to the clerk of the monastery and said, I have a donation from a supporter in America and uh, could we use it to offer a lunch for the 750 people who are practicing here? And the clerk uh, said, uh, no, I'm sorry. All the lunches have been subscribed for the next three months. It's in one of the poorest countries on the face of the earth. But there is so much devotion and so much faith in the power and beauty of generosity that the three-month meal subscriptions had all been taken up. I said, well, is there anything we could do? He could say, yes, you could sponsor a cup sponsor a couple of special breakfasts. So they make a special meal for everybody in the monastery that wouldn't normally be served, but when they have the extra funds, they can do that. So then on those days when there were the special breakfasts, I could go down and read the meal board. They have a board much like ours. In fact, our board was inspired by this practice in Burmese monasteries of meal offerings. And the dedication for the day comes from the person or group who was offering the food. So I could go down and read her name on the days that uh, the special breakfasts were offered. But every day going to lunch was a treat because the people who were offering the lunch that day would come to watch it being offered to the 450 monks and 150 nuns who went through the line. And sometimes it was a family, sometimes it was like a whole clan or a village and they would sit off to the side and watch the whole line of monks go through. And Pauk Sayadaw would always lead the way because he had about 60 reigns at that point. He had so many years in the robes. He would be the first one through the line and then the senior monks and then and so on. And they would look so happy. They would be so delighted watching everybody be served from their offering from that day. And, you know, they would have collected the money from everybody in the village or the whole family. They would dress up in their best clothes to come and watch the meal being offered. It was really beautiful. So you ta- we take these qualities like generosity, like virtue, like loving kindness. These are considered uh, bases for what's called merit. Wholesome actions in the teachings of the Buddha are considered to generate positive energy that more or less ripples forward with us. And this is from the Buddha. There are these streams of merit, streams of the wholesome, nourishments of happiness, which are heavenly, ripening in happiness, conducive to heaven, and which lead to whatever is wished for, loved and agreeable to one's welfare and happiness. This is a profound statement and I hope you'll sort of take it in and reflect on it. Practices like generosity, virtue, loving kindness lead to whatever is wished for, loved and agreeable to one's welfare and happiness. When I think about the sources of worldly happiness happiness being a normal human being in the world, these are the three things I think about that are most important. And as someone mentioned in a 
question period the other morning. These can be found in every faith, generosity, virtue, and loving kindness. So as we practice these, this is a stream that can lead to what I call ordinary human happiness, worldly happiness. Then, of course, our practice also offers us the deeper happiness of insight. This opens up new areas, greater potential for freedom. But the insight journey is not always so easy. You know, as you know, the journey of insight opens up um, old psychological patterns. It opens up the common human tendency of craving through greed, aversion, and delusion, and we meet those forces very directly. That's not easy. But there's even joy in that. If you look at the, if you look at the moment when the mind is steady enough to meet a deeply entrenched pattern that you're just recognizing, there is a joy in that. Because until we meet it directly, and many of you have said this in the interviews, we don't have a possibility of releasing it. But when we can meet it directly and with clarity, there's a possibility of understanding it and then releasing it. And releasing these deeply held tendencies is a source of a great deal of freedom and happiness. This is from an Australian poet named Michael Lunig. When the heart is cut or cracked or broken, do not clutch it. Let the wound lie open. Let the wind from the good old sea blow in to bathe the wound with salt and let it sting. Let a stray dog lick it. Let a bird lean in the hole and sing a simple song like a tiny bell and let it ring. So even in healing, there is a sweetness, there's a joy. Then the meditation leads on to deeper states of concentration, peace, and stillness. And these are felt as deeply satisfying places to be, deeply satisfying places to reside, to abide. In some ways, I think for me personally, the discovery of peace was one of the most onward leading um, fruits of retreat practice. As I you know, began to practice through doing intensive retreats, I found levels of peace and calm that I'd never known in daily life. I'd never known in my ordinary existence. And they were so rich and meaningful that every time I thought, oh, if this much is possible, how much more is possible? And then I would want to go back and find out what else was possible. So these experiences of deeper and deeper peace um, really led me on. And of course, one of the things that's most joyful about peace, even though the, the emotional tone may feel fairly neutral and not a strong affect, we start to really appreciate the absence of the hindrances. When the mind is in that state of stillness, the hindrances are no longer assaulting. And the relief of that is a beautiful kind of freedom. And then as the concentration develops further, um, it moves into these states uh, called jhana. This is the way the Buddha described the first of the concentration states called jhana. 
One enters and abides in the first jhana with rapture and pleasure born of seclusion. She makes the rapture and pleasure born of seclusion drench, fill, steep, and pervade this body so that there is no part of her whole body unpervaded by the rapture and pleasure. This is the delight of concentration as it deepens and matures. This rapture and pleasure become very accessible. Another beautiful uh, access to joy comes through gratitude. And um, gratitude is such a beautiful emotion. Uh, It's in the Brahma Vihara family. And personally, I would put it uh, very similar to, has a similar feel to mudita for self. When we stop to appreciate our own blessings, we are in the realm of gratitude. So mudita for self can give access to gratitude, um, or you can access it through deliberately thinking of all the things you're grateful for, just calling them to mind. And I want to tell a little story about Kamala, and I hope she won't mind. I've asked her before. I forgot to ask her tonight, but (laughs) I've asked her before if I could tell this story. So Kamala has um, some grandchildren, and uh, one time she was talking to one of her granddaughters. Her granddaughter was about five or six at this time, I think, and she, Kamala called her on Christmas Day. Kamala was on Hawaii and her granddaughter was on the mainland. And uh, the girl had gotten a lot of Christmas presents that she really enjoyed, you know, being six years old, you love Christmas presents, you know, that's kind of like the high time of the year. And so uh, Kamala asked this really kind of thoughtful question. He said, oh, when you get lots of presents, do you feel thankful for what you have or does it make you want more? (laughs) And the little girl said, oh, Nana, I want more. And Kamala just said in her very quiet way, oh, that's too bad. (laughs) So the granddaughter actually picked up on that and said, well, what do you mean? And Kamala said, well, haven't you noticed that when you're thankful for what you have, you feel good? And when you're wanting more, it doesn't feel as good. And the little girl said, oh, Nana, you're right. So this is the beauty of gratitude. When we have gratitude, greed is blocked because we appreciate what we have. And aversion is blocked because we appreciate the present moment. So gratitude is a movement out of those kilesas. And as such, it's it's in the Brahma Vihara family. It's one aspect of the Brahma Viharas. And we all have a lot to be grateful for. You know, just think about the opportunity to be here for six weeks or three months immersed in the Dharma. Even though it's difficult, even though many times you might wish to be anywhere else but here, it's a fabulous opportunity. And it's like, you know, I think of it as an investment in our future happiness and freedom. 
we're, we're making deposits that will ripen in the future, moment by moment. So in thinking about all we have to be grateful for, I'm reminded of a friend who was working in a refugee camp in Thailand. And the refugees were uh, people from the countries where the wars had been going on. This was in the mid-80s. So both in Cambodia and in Laos, there had been quite destructive regimes where a lot of people were suffering and a lot of people were displaced from their homes. And so a number of the people who were coming into the refugee camps were from the hill tribes of those countries. When they came to the refugee camp, our, our friend and other workers, aid workers, both Thai and Western, were helping them acclimatize to a new culture. And they were teaching them skills like how to use money, what a washing machine does, what a toaster is, and how to read a bus schedule. Because from where they had come, these people didn't have those things. So one of the questions that they would routinely ask, you know, kind of in their schools, in the refugee camp, is um, what are the most important things in life? So this one teenage girl said, the most important things in life are fire, rice, and water. And I think about that because, you know, if we didn't have those things, they would be the most important things for us too. But as it is, we have food, we have clothing, we have shelter, we have some access to medicine. These are considered the requisites in the Buddhist system. We have those things, and many of us have much more than that. So we all have that to be grateful for, as well as the Dharma. And many of you have mentioned this over recent days, the gratitude for the opportunity to be here, the gratitude to be able to practice, gratitude for the Buddha, the Dharma, and the Sangha. These really are our, our refuges. So joy is normally considered to be dependent on these conditions. It flowers in response to conditions. Happiness becomes a kind of a softer and quieter bloom that isn't so dependent on conditions. It settles within us or we settle into that quality of contentment. We could say that happiness is a kind of joy that has risen up into rapture or piti and become more intense and then has become tranquilized through calm to settle out into this stable kind of contentment where really the mind is finding the quality of being contented within itself. It's not looking out anymore. We don't have to worry about making this happiness permanent. That was something that uh, bothered me as I first started to come upon this, that there wasn't a way to fix it and make it permanent. But we, we can't do that. We don't have to try. It will come when it comes and it will go when it goes. And that's why there's this saying in the Dharma, take care of this moment and you take care of all time. And we develop that attitude. We take care of this moment. 
This is from Rumi, and it helps to remember that um, when Rumi says you, he means what is divine, what is uh, most essential. Come to the orchard in spring. There is light and wine and sweethearts in the pomegranate flowers. If you do not come, these do not matter. If you do come, these do not matter. That's that deep contentment. But then, of course, the practice doesn't stop here. It doesn't stop just with wholesome states. The Buddha said at one point, two things I never lost track of in my own practice, not to be lax in my efforts and not to settle merely for wholesome states of mind. Because the sequence continues from happiness into concentration, insight, and liberation. But the role of happiness is really important. One of my teachers, Mingyur Rinpoche, who's a very bright young Tibetan Lama, who's currently away on a personal retreat that is in its fourth year and counting, um, put it this way. He said, the main cause of freedom is happiness. The main cause of freedom is happiness. We cultivate this and it's onward leading, it goes further. Joseph's first teacher, Manindraji, used to say, if you aim for the highest happiness, all the other kinds will come along the way. So we just keep walking this path of mindfulness pointed to the final goal and all kinds of happiness flower along the way. And as Kamala read the other night, the goal of the practice is not virtue or gain or renown or concentration or insight, but it is the unshakable deliverance of mind that is the goal of the holy life, its heartwood and its end. That is the highest happiness. So let's just sit together for a moment, please. It is the unshakable deliverance of mind that is the goal of the holy life, its heartwood and its end. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.